Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday, and I, I want to start off by apologizing for my morning newsletter. I mean, I, as I wrote, I, I considered trying to find the equivalent of a pony buried in all the merit of last night's <laughs> primary elections, but I failed. Uh, the election results were bad. Um, the worst is yet to come. And I'm just sort of bracing myself for all the unsubscribes. <laughs> just like I, 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 I almost actually made the headline of the newsletter. You're probably not going to want to read today's newsletter, but you, but you will want to listen to today's podcast because we are joined by my colleague Will Salatan, who is here to discuss an absolute clusterfuck of news. That was that was your <laughs> phrase. So I, I, I wasn't going to use that word, but. So yeah, the uh, difference between me and Charlie is Charlie uses the expletive on the air. So I don't know where to begin uh, all of this. You know, I mean, I, I'm tempted to uh, start with the primaries, but um, it's early. So could we talk about the the woman that paid Kimberly Guilfoyle $60,000 <laughs> to give the two-minute speech at January 6th? I'm sorry, she's an heiress. She's the heiress to the Publix chain. I don't know. Right. You know, here's an indication that you just have too much money. Right. I mean, she could have gone out in her backyard and just burned the cash, but she gave it to Kimberly freaking Guilfoyle. Well, in her defense, you know, the <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. and Kim Guilfoyle really needed that $60,000. So I'm uh, glad that she's redistributing some of her oligarchic income. Well, that is true. A little bit of uh, spreading the money around. So Lauren Boebert is back in the news. There's certain aspects of this that we're not going to talk about. I'm just not going there. I mean, there are people who are retweeting things. And, you know, I, my position on all of this is that if, you know, if something is out there on Twitter, you can sit back. I mean, honestly, believe it or not, I know this, this will seem contrarian, but we can actually wait to have a take on something until we find out whether or not it's true. Radical, I know. But so, but there is one thing, and I don't know whether you caught this, Will. Lauren Boebert is speaking at, it looks like some Christian Bible camp or something. Do you know what the venue was? I don't know what the venue is, no. Yeah, okay, but but it's got some Christian things. So so clearly it's, it, it's probably an audience of people who are evangelical, who are presumably somewhat uh, tangentially familiar with the New Testament. And she's talking about uh, Jesus and AR-15. So can you, can you tell the story better than I can? Well, I think you can. Well, she, she's on stage and she's talking about gun rights and, yeah. you know, people invoking Jesus. And she says that Jesus, quote, didn't have enough, meaning AR-15s, to keep his government from killing him, like that he needed to arm himself, right, against him. That's, that's the lesson she takes from the story of Jesus. Well, the, the, so. that, that's a big complaint of the apostles in the, in, in, <laughs> in, the, in the gospel according to Luke. They're all sitting around thinking, you know, if we just had AR-15s, and I, I guess I was, into, now she's doing it in the context of, people are always asking me, what would Jesus do? You know, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. Well, you know, if Jesus had an AR-15, you know, his government would have been able to kill him. I mean, the theology behind that is sound, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, well, because no, I'm trying to imagine the Christians, and can you hear the air quotes in, uh, you know, above my head here? The, air, <laughs> the, the, the Christians in the audience listening to that and going, ah, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Good point, Lauren. What? In, in, in her defense, this, okay. what she, what she, <laughs> 
in Lauren Boebert's defense, what she did is is discussed heavily in the Bible. It is called idolatry, right? <laughs> yes. It is. There was there was the cult of the golden calf, and in Lauren Boebert's case, and the case of all those air quote Christians you're talking about, there's the cult of the AR-15. And one of the delights about this otherwise grotesque story is watching actual Christians respond to her remarks by quoting the actual Bible. Uh, and quoting the actual Jesus who said, put your sword in its place for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Who li- Jesus literally said, don't defend me with arms against the the government that is wrongly coming for me. Because Jesus Awkward. was practicing. Yeah, so Awkward. the actual Christians have the contradictory quote. Ah, see, that's fake news in the gospel. Okay, I, okay I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really, really tempted to go down this rabbit hole, but I am not going to do it. Okay, since I'm in this mood and because I, I'm trying to delay talking about the election, uh, <laughs> I've changed in my news that I used to have the, I call it cheap shots, but I've, I've updated it to the FFS update, which you can, you can translate. And I devoted it today to Dinesh D'Souza. And, and I'm sorry, I know this sounds like low-hanging fruit, but did you see his tweet where I am so proud of my Pride Month attire, I'm posting it again, find this and other cool stuff at shop. DineshDeSouza.com. And there is, there is Dinesh D'Souza. I'm, I cannot make this. I'm sorry. I, what, what I wrote is like, you know, I don't know that you're old enough, uh, Will, to remember there was actually a time when Dinesh D'Souza was actually taken seriously. And really, he, he had pretensions to intellectual seriousness. He wrote books. The guy was actually the president of a college for a while until he was uh, fired for being involved in the sex scandal. But, you know, and then, you know, the rest and all the old, you know, indictment, convicted felon, pardoned by the president, you know, bullshit movie. He's had an interesting week. Former Attorney General Bill Barr laughing at his stupid 2000 years. <laughs> so apparently he felt the need to change the narrative by posting a picture of himself sitting. And I am not making this up. Sitting on a riding lawnmower. Tractor, lawnmower, wearing a T-shirt that reads proud member of the LGB FJB community to Susan. Okay. Now. Okay. So I, I, this is not rocket science. You know, it's high. He's so clever, you know, LGB, you know, um, you know what that means. I mean, you know, let's go Brandon and FJB. I think you can work that out. You know, okay. On yeah. So, I mean, you have this mouth breathing middle school humor. <laughs> I said, fuck Joe Biden on my t-shirt. <laughs> And I have mock gays and everything. And, and you know, we could talk about, you know, the, the, the you know, the gay bashing and all of that stuff. But I, I am, I admit, I'm, I am, I am obsessed about the, the choice of the riding lawnmower. Because, <laughs> because not, I mean, it was probably the same thinking that put um, Michael Dukakis in the tank. <laughs> Do you remember this? Like, you know, yeah. I'm going to look macho. And, and D'Souza, I mean, he's thinking that this is my manly men of the people populist nerd vibe thing that he's capturing with all of his merch. It's so pathetic. I just wait. I, I, I have a question about this. Yeah. I, I'm a little puzzled. So the macho thing is to sit in your mower, not push it. Is that correct? I don't have any idea what he's doing. I mean, he's uh, I, I, I think it's a fair bet that. Dinesh D'Souza has never mowed his lawn ever, but yeah, he's posing. He chooses. I'm going to pose with the T-shirt, this hat, this shit-eating grin. There's a flag in the back, so I'm a patriot. I'm a man. I hate gays. I mean, so you know, I'd what? 
Well, so in his I, defense, Will, I want to hear this. <laughs> I, I, I'm still grappling with the idea that the actual sort of, you know, there would be physical exertion involved in pushing a mower, but sitting on a mower is kind of a white collar guy's idea of a blue collar guy. I mean, it's like, I'm going to be riding around on this thing that's going to carry me and I'm going to, uh, but, you know, setting that aside, it's kind of a perfect distillation of what the Republican Party is now, right? I mean, there are no issues involved. No. There's no agenda. There's no like what we're going to do for you. It's all about resentment. So the expletive, the FJB, which we all know what that is, right? That That's it. That's the signifier. That's it. Anyway, so I think we should make a feature, the, you know, In Their Defense by Will Salatan. <laughs> I, I think this could be a thing, you know, maybe that could be your, your next book in their I, I, defense. <laughs> I feel like the I reality like is so awful that, you I know, know I just have to descend into the irony of calling everything a defense because, yeah. you know, it is related. It's just everything's all the values are upside down. Well, and, and, and you can tell what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm actually in, in serious denial. Okay. So we should talk about the election. I mean, where do we start? Representative Tom Rice uh, from South Carolina, one of the uh, 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump uh, and was the first uh, impeachment vote to actually face a primary, um, was uh, was just hammered last night by his Trump-backed opponent. He got like 25% of the vote and, uh, and ousted. Na uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who briefly for like five minutes had her Trump doubts, um, and was faced by a Trump endorsed candidate survived, but she's very different than Tom Rice because she is the one who went on that grovel tour. She actually went up to Trump tower to pledge her fealty to the orange God King forever. So there's that in South Carolina. And then you'll have a flat out election denier winning the Republican primary for secretary of state in Nevada. Uh, this is a guy who told NBC news that he would not have certified the 2020, uh, results. Um, or would you like to talk about the Republicans flipping a one solidly Democratic congressional seat in an overwhelmingly Hispanic district down in Texas? I mean, red lights are going off all over the place. That demographic shift is real. And then, as, as I wrote in my newsletter, which I dare you to read, um, the, the cherry on top of this steaming pile of awful this new USA Today um, Suffolk University poll in Pennsylvania has right-wing conspiracy theorist, insurrectionist Doug Mastriano within four points of the Democratic candidate for governor, and that's within the margin of error. So happy fucking Wednesday, Will. I'm sorry, Charlie. Reality really is a bitch. I, yeah. I, what I saw last night was a lot of pundits trying to sort of puzzle over, okay, Tom Rice loses, but Nancy may survive. So it's kind of a mixed verdict. I no, don't see it as a no. mixed verdict. I mean, as you're pointing out, I mean, Tom Rice voted for impeachment. Nancy Mace did not vote for impeachment. Nancy Mace barely survived her primary against a Trump-backed opponent after what? I mean, her sin was voting to certify the 2020 election. That's it. I mean, and she voted to, to enforce the subpoena against Steve, Steve Bannon. But she voted against impeachment. And she does the sort of, you know, stalker ex-girlfriend video outside of Trump Tower. She's talking all about how she, she's not a never Trumper. She's a Trumper. Right. And the idea that this Trumper can barely survive having voted to, cer to certify the election 
that's just more evidence of the degree to which the party has Trumpified. That's my view. Yeah, I mean, the, the headline I remember from Vanity Fair was South Carolina Congresswoman pledges total devotion to Trump one day after he endorses opponent. So, you know, she was rewarded for the debased self-debasement, the, 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 the groveling, whereas Tom Rice, who just, can we just spend a, a moment on him? I mean, this, may, this, is a, this guy's a mensch. He never backed off. And I don't think he got as much credit as he deserved. You know, look, uh, you know, all, all praise to uh, to Liz Cheney. But Tom Rice was another guy. Nobody saw his vote coming um, last January. And then while a lot of these other Republicans sort of went to ground, you know, went back into the tall grass and everything, it, you know, Tom Rice didn't. He continued to be strong. He pushed back against uh, Trump. So he lost with his dignity intact, which I, I did think I think counts for something. But again, you know, Tom, you know, he's a, he's a mensch. So, of course, there's no place for him in the Republican Party. There's no place for him in the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Sarah Palin, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert and, and Donald Trump. And I'm not I'm, I'm not sure there's anything puzzling about that. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, Tom Rice, he's not a never Trumper. Tom Rice voted mm-hmm. with Donald Trump. 94% of the time. That was a number that he used. Like, right. Cheney, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But that's policy. That's policy. And as we were just discussing, the Republican Party is no longer about policy, right? So this guy is is written out, is, is thoroughly defeated in his primary, because on the one thing that matters, which is the worst thing, it is, you know, re- rejecting the election results and, and his vote for impeachment, that's, that one heresy matters more than all of the policy. So to me, it's a it's a story about the Republican Party. And and Charlie, you were talking before about the you know, the, he's the first one to of the impeachers, the 10 who voted for impeachment to face a primary to lose his primary. But we already have, as you know, four who are retiring out of the right. 10. Right. We've only got one who's safe. And that's the guy in California, Valadao, who's who, yeah. you know, is in a Biden district. So, you know, we're still looking at the possibility of losing nearly all of those 10. And it's sort of a story of Trump's triumph within the Republican Party. But the bigger story is the Republican Party becoming so devoted to this one lie about Trump and this one madness that in the future, hopefully, they will. I mean, I would like to believe that in the future, Tom Rice will be understood as the hero he is. So will Liz Cheney, Mm -hmm. regardless of, of whether they come back into politics officially or not. Well, I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, any of you that were wondering where the wind was blowing on all of this and what might happen with Liz Cheney in Wyoming, I, I think this is a pretty good indication. I don't know how else you interpret that. But again, Liz Cheney, I'm going to come back to her in, in a moment. If she goes down, I think she will think it was was worth it. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Nevada. Election denier won the, the primary for Secretary of State and Trump-backed candidates also won in the Senate race and the governor's race. And so Politico's playbook notes 2020 election deniers are winning everywhere, not Georgia, but winning everywhere else. It's becoming more common than not for Republicans who support false election fraud theories to win Republican primaries in many places. It is now the establishment GOP position. <sighs> yeah. Uh, first of all, this guy in Nevada, Marchant, he he said not it's not just that he's an election. I mean, he said he wouldn't have certified yeah. the vote. And it's not just as we point out, he's this, he would be the secretary of state. He would be the person who has to certify it, right? So he, he would not do so. Uh, he also said that he wouldn't rule out doing an alternate slate of electors in the next round. I mean, you know, the, uh, he said, 
And he said, uh, and, and he wants to get rid of early vote. I love talking about early voting because these Republicans who say they want to get rid of early voting, they're what they're, it's a tell. It's a tell that they're not really interested in election fraud because early voting is in person. It's in-person voting, just like voting on election day. The only reason you would be against early voting, in-person voting, is to make it harder for people to vote. No, you can only vote on this one day, and if you can't get that shift off from your job, you know, you're screwed. So he's awful. Mastriano, the guy in Pennsylvania, oh. as you were pointing out that poll, Shapiro, the Democratic nominee, is at 44%. Mastriano is at 40%. That is a solid 40% in Pennsylvania, in a right. crucial swing state. For, for a real somebody, nut job. A guy who was at January 6th. Yeah. He was there. He was involved, heavily involved in it and involved in trying to overturn the election in numerous other ways before January 6th. So that's that just shows you how many Republicans and how many Americans, how many people in Pennsylvania don't care about democracy. They're just willing to vote for the Republican Party line, regardless of who's on it. Well, it also gives you an indication of just how overwhelming um, the, the the political environment is working against the Democrats right now. I think it's not so much they don't care about democracy as that it's it's not top of mind for them, especially when they're, you know, inflation, interest rates, the stock market, all of those things out there. I mean, it feels like this just perfect storm. And Okay, let's let's move on to to this. You know, what is your take on what's happening to the Hispanic vote? I mean, this is we are watching a tectonic shift, possibly at least in Texas with the Hispanic uh, votes, where you have an overwhelmingly Hispanic district that has always been Democratic, flipped now to a Republican. Now, there's going to be a rerun in November, and they've changed the lines and everything. Um, but you're seeing Republicans winning in counties. They've never won in before right now. So give me your take on on what's happening there, because I think a lot of us, a lot of Democrats, though, as well, had the had the impression that uh, in the era of Trump, there's just no way that Hispanics are ever going to vote for Republicans, not even in the short term, maybe never again. And yet it's happening. What's going on? Well, so Democrats, progressives, have this idea about Hispanic voters. It's an idea they have generally that people vote on the basis of identity, right? Identity drives everything. Uh, what What is your ethnicity? I'm Latino, therefore I will vote Democratic. And what Latino voters are, the message they're sending back is, no, no, actually, we're like you. We're like the white people. We don't vote the color of our skin necessarily. We don't identify one party with it. We have real concerns. We have economic concerns. We're not happy about that. They're not happy about the economic situation, just like white people. Also, the border situation in Texas is bad. You know, the, the, there's major problems going on at the border. And the Texans and South, people in South Texas are having to deal with that. And the National Democratic Party isn't really paying so much attention to this. This is an issue you only hear about on Fox News. And in fairness, it's the only issue you hear about on Fox News, and they talk about it too much. But Democrats don't talk about it at all. In South Texas, people are upset about it. it that seems to have played some role in this. But the Democratic Party, Charlie, this is a district that Obama won by like 20 plus points. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a, a shift going on, and the shift is clearly not based on ethnicity. This is, a, this is an 85% Hispanic district. Yeah. It's like, you don't need to look at the Hispanic crosstab in this district. The <laughs> district is the crosstab, right? So that's a very clear message to the National Democratic Party. Wake up. 
Yeah, well, what I wrote this morning was, how about now? Are the Democrats ready to pay attention to what Reed Teixeira has been saying about this? Because, you know, Reed wrote the book, you know, the emerging Democratic majority, but he's been sounding the alarms again and again and again about what's happening. And he wrote, you know, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that Democrats have seriously erred by lumping Hispanics in with people of color and assuming they embrace the activism around racial issues that dominated so much of the political scene in 2020. This was a flawed assumption. The reality of the Hispanic population is that they are, broadly speaking, an overwhelmingly working class, economically progressive, but socially moderate constituency that cares above all about jobs, the economy, and health care. And so, again, I think that there was a certain take them for granted. You know, the browning of America meant we're just going to win elections forever. And it's just not true. You made another point here, and and, and reach the sheriff to, to quote him again. Talks about the Fox News fallacy for, on the left, which is that we, 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 he describes it that if Fox News thinks that something is a big issue, then clearly we have to decide that it's not. So if Fox News talks about crime, we will ignore it. If Fox News says that there is a crisis at the border, obviously that's not true. And he says no. You've kind of been rope-a-doped into ignoring real problems here. And I think you're seeing that, you know, we talk about this is the wake-up call. I don't know. Are they going to wake up? I mean, at some point, are Democrats going to look around the country and see these nut jobs, you know, see the Herschel Walkers, you know, see the Eric Greitens, see the J.D. Vances, you know, see the the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and say, hey, you know, how are we losing to these people? <laughs> How yeah. are we losing? I mean, internally, what are they telling themselves? I mean, you know, well, Fox News is not an answer to every question about why you are losing elections, not just not just marginal elections, but elections that you should never shouldn't even be close that you would uh, and you're still losing. What do you think? Yeah, that, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I, the the problem is it's you and me talking, and what where what are you know the the demo, we 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 don't run the Democratic Party. What we have, Charlie, is we have a totally crazy party in the Republican Party yeah. that is just like has no you know completely committed to lies, completely committed to like we get having its way regardless of whether it actually won the most votes. Right. And the other party, so we desperately need the other party to be sane. The other party has its own problems. They are not nearly, in my opinion, as bad as the Republican Party's problems, right? But they're losing. Yes, they are losing, and they do need to sort of get out of their pathological thinking about like the one thing that I disagree with in, in, in Roy Teixeira's now, I mean, I love Roy Teixeira, but yeah. it's not like re- Hispanics aren't voting like people of color. This is a general point. This isn't just about Latinos. This is about people of color. People of color are people. Okay. Do not assume, you know, <laughs> from the color of someone's skin, how they will vote, how they will think. So it's not just Latinos. There's plenty of black people in cities are, do not take the left wing line on policing, for example, like there's real crime. We need cops here. We need good cops, cops who respect us, but we need crime control. And so that does not comport with a lot of crazy left wing thinking. I don't know what is the mechanism that, I mean, presumably what's going to happen this year is Republicans will take the House. God knows what else they will take. And will Democrats feel that, okay, we need to set aside some of our policy aims because we have to be the same party? I don't know if they'll do that. I don't know. So I, I linked to uh, Josh Kroshauer, uh, who's sort of running the numbers about, you know, how big will the Republican wave be? And he says, look, it's, it's, here's, here's the number that, that he's kind of circling. He says, mark the number 248, which would mean that 
they picked up 35 net seats on the scorecard. That would be a sign of a true political tsunami because simply winning 242 seats, which would be a 29 seat gain, would match the party's 2010 standing, which was a big win. Anything at 233 or higher, plus 20, would give Kevin McCarthy enough breathing room to manage his caucus effectively without having to fear the most extreme House Republicans from disrupting his best laid plans. So that, I mean, that's now becoming what, you know, the pundits are thinking, you know, 20, 30 seats, possibly uh, more. Um, And then, of course, there is the Senate. Okay, let's take a deep breath, because all of this is taking place as the evidence continues to mount of the criminal conspiracy led by the leader of the Republican Party. And this is where my head starts to get a little hot here, that the evidence is overwhelming that Donald Trump, who will be the Republican nominee in 2024, most likely, conspired to overturn a free and fair election. And we've had this extraordinary scene of watching people in his own administration explain why this was wrong, how they had told him that he was believing a big lie and that he didn't believe it. You had a really extraordinary piece in the bulwark yesterday, and I want to discuss that right after this. It's the final week for Genucel's summer blowout sale. Now, save over 60% off Genucel's most popular package at Genucel.com and get two free gifts with your order. Your order will include Genucel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free and Genucel's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Genucel's dark spot corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. Look, Genucel's been known for quality skin care since the very first treatment for under eye bags and puffiness. It's a great product for the summer and for the heat, humidity, and the longer days give us all some under eye puffiness. You know what I mean. And that's also included in your most popular package today. Genucel guarantees results or your money back and sign up for Genucel's best in class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and complimentary gift set. Go to genucel.com slash bulwark genucel.com slash bulwark and enter my promo code bulwark at checkout for an extra discount and free shipping. Go to genucel.com slash bulwark. That's genucel.com slash bulwark. All right, we are back with my colleague, Will Salatan. Okay, I want to talk to you about your piece in the bulwark yesterday, because I think that uh, you and Mona Chiron addressed uh, you know, the, just one of the key issues that I think have been missed by by some of the pundits, which is this whole question of what did uh, Donald Trump know? And when did he know it? Was he lying or was he delusional? And there are some people out there who are saying, you know, a lot of this testimony of people telling him, you know, you, you lost the election, um, and Trump refusing to believe it is actually evidence that he did not have criminal intent because you have to have criminal intent in order to, uh, you know, be held liable but I thought you made this great point that if Trump wasn't lying, that's actually worse. So make your case. Okay. So in Mona's defense, Mona Charon wrote, you know, right, legally, criminally, et cetera, you know, they, it, it doesn't exactly matter whether Trump was lying or delusional. He was told, you know, the facts by people he should have trusted, yeah. by people who knew the facts, and he just didn't, he refused to accept them. And, you know, that for various legal reasons, he's, he's legally accountable for that. However, 
my conclusion from watching that hearing, there was lots of interesting testimony. I did not care for the Thursday hearing the, the week before, but the Monday hearing was really interesting. Lots of like video testimony from people who had interacted with Trump. And all of those episodes of interaction with Trump showed not a man who had a kind of Nixonian awareness of what the truth was and we're going to cover it up. It was a Trumpian denial. It was He was absolutely impervious to the information. And so my takeaway was he's not lying in the traditional Nixonian or Bill Clintonian sense, right? It's, it's that Donald Trump simply cannot accept information, no matter how well substantiated, that he doesn't like. And in this case, it was information that he had lost the election and needed to get out of the White House. So that makes him delusional and delusional about something <clears throat> that makes him a danger to the United States of America. The idea of putting back in power a man whom we now have multiple witnesses testifying that they told him he had lost an election and he refused to accept it and he prepared to use and did use violence and every lever of government to try to stay in power. The notion of putting that person back in power is horrifying. And the fact that he does not know, in my opinion, that it is not true, and no matter what he is told, makes him a much, much more dangerous person as a potential future president than if he knew he were lying. So that's my case. Well, I think it's a very powerful case. And it it, it seems self-evident that, you know, uh, I mean, lying is bad. It's terrible. But a president who um, is is delusional, given the powers of the presidency, um, hello, raises all kinds of questions. Um, I talked with Mona on our secret podcast about this, and I thought that she also made the point that, you know, even after six years, we're having a hard time understanding this Trumpian mind that you were just describing. That it's sort of a category error when we think about, you know, true or false, because his mind doesn't even work that way. And I think her analogy was something like, you know, it's like asking whether a Komodo dragon prefers hip hop or smooth jazz. I mean, it's just irrelevant to understanding his mind. The notion that listening to all of this, that Republicans would still go, absolutely, this is the man that we want to put back in the Oval Office with his finger on the button in charge of the IRS, the CIA, the FBI, and the Justice Department. That is absolutely mind boggling. Okay. So since we're, oh, before I do, you said you didn't like the last Thursday's hearing. Um, I was kind of a fan of that. So I was interested in, in hearing what you didn't like. Apparently I'm the outlier, but Charlie, that hearing was so, it was so staged. It was so, the witnesses were not actually providing information. It was for emotional effect. Yeah. You didn't really learn anything about, I mean, the, all the learning was about the proud boys and the oath keepers. And you know, that, that was useful, but the Monday hearing was lots of information. It was lots of behind the scenes people, you know, Bill Barr, Bill Stepien, the people who worked directly with Trump talking about it. I felt like I learned a lot from that. And yeah. I think that is a role that the committee can play. I'm hopeful that the other hearings will be like the Monday hearing, not like the Thursday hearing. So what's interesting about this is it feels like they're learning in process, that they are, that they're developing more of a strategy. I, I was more favorable to what happened on Thursday. I agree with you about the live testimony. I thought was a little bit on even I didn't quite get the, the um, you know, having the uh, the uh, the documentary maker testify live. What was that about? I don't know. Especially when you had all of these cops sitting right behind him who had really <laughs> compelling stories. That I mean, like, hello, there's Harry Dunn, right the freak there. He's right there. Okay, I we, they have things to say. Um, but let me just play something that was very very uh, interesting. You you have Liz Cheney. Um, put out a tweet yesterday, a video previewing tomorrow's hearing. It's kind of like, 
you know what you do with a you know a movie or a miniseries saying okay here's a highlight that's coming it's also kind of interesting and i want to put this in a little bit of context because there seems to be a little bit of a a disagreement between liz cheney and the chairman of the committee uh, about whether or not the committee will make a quote-unquote criminal referral uh, to the justice department now, i actually think that's overblown but um, Benny Thompson says, no, we're not going to do that. She is saying we haven't made a decision to do that. And very clearly, she has been laying out a case for criminal charges. The reason I say it, maybe it's overblown because it doesn't matter what the committee says. They, they have no, it's not a formal thing. Um, the Department of Justice is going to do what it's going to do, um, regardless of whether or not the committee you know, says this. In any case, while there is this sort of back and forth about criminal charges, not criminal charges, she puts out this preview video. Let's play the audio of this because it ends with, I think, a pretty kick-ass soundbite. The select committee's hearing showed all Americans that President Trump's claims of a stolen 2020 election were, to use former Attorney General Barr's words, complete nonsense. We heard this from Donald Trump's own campaign experts, his own campaign lawyers, his own campaign manager, his attorney general, and others Donald Trump appointed to leadership positions in the U.S. Department of Justice. President Trump's advisors knew what he was saying was false, and they told him so directly and repeatedly. The testimony from our first two hearings is available on the Select Committee's website, so all Americans can easily view it. In our next hearing on Thursday, the Select Committee will examine President Trump's relentless effort on January 6th and in the days beforehand to pressure Vice President Pence to refuse to count lawful electoral votes. As a federal judge has indicated, this likely violated two federal criminal statutes. President Trump had no factual basis for what he was doing, and he had been told it was illegal. Despite this, President Trump plotted with a lawyer named John Eastman and others to overturn the outcome of the election on January 6th. To give you a sense of the gravity of these issues, here is a clip of one of President Trump's own White House lawyers, Eric Hirschman, who talked to Mr. Eastman the day after January 6th. It was the day after. Uh, Eastman, I don't remember why he called me, He's in a, or he texted me or called me, wanted to talk with me, and he said he couldn't reach others. And he started to ask me about something dealing with Georgia and preserving something potentially for appeal. Uh, and I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right? I said, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. And I screamed, I said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I screamed at that. He said, eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. I love that. <laughs> I actually love it. And then I hung up on him. Like, you know, I just... So tomorrow we're going to be hearing a, a lot about that sort of thing. And and also the the hearing that was supposed to be today, they, they canceled, is going to focus on the Department of Justice. I'm interested in this in this character, Jeffrey Clark, and what we are learning about him. Will, I know you've been paying attention to that, too. 
Yeah, I, I mean the the story that was in the the Washington Post was you know that uh, Clark, who was as like a relatively low level uh, official in the in the Justice Department, is like at the White. So it's an end run around the leadership of the Justice Department, around the then. Right. Act- well, they wanted to make him. I mean, he came within like five minutes. It looks like of becoming right. the acting Attorney General, and then using the power of the Department of Justice to push the big lie. So this story, I I want people to understand how easy it is to destroy democracy in the United States of America. It really is not hard at all. This story illustrates, number one, this guy, he's a low-level official in the Justice Department. He end runs the the actual leader. By the way, this all happens because Bill Barr, because he thinks Trump is, in his words, lost contact with reality. What does Bill Barr do? Does he come out and say the president is completely insane? We have to stop this. We have to do the 25th. No. Bill Barr quietly leaves. Right, doesn't say a damn thing. So he's now got an acting AG, uh, uh, Jeffrey Rosen. The uh, Trump, it, this guy Clark has like got contacts in the White House, and Trump and his low, this low-level official are conspiring. Clark is going to the White House, going to go around the leadership of the Justice Department, make me the Attorney General, and all Trump has to do is say yes, make this guy appoint this guy Attorney General, and the the deal is that Clark says he's going to send a letter out. Uh, saying that there are significant concerns about the accuracy of the vote. And then they're going to use this letter to like justify the alternate slates of electors to stop the counting of votes on January 6th to put in the Trump electors. I mean, that's all it takes is this appointment and a letter and some friendly governors or secretaries of state, the ones we're, you know, very close to electing this year. And poof, you have a coup. Right. That's how close we are. That's how easy it is. So this account in The Washington Post is really good. You know, history is calling, Clark told Trump, according to a deposition. This is our opportunity. We can get this done. I mean, he wanted to do this. Right. And what happened was the Department of Justice pushed back on him. And uh, Rich Donahue, he said, don't don't do this. And, and he says, what happens if within 48 hours we have hundreds of resignations from your Justice Department because of your actions? What does that say about your leadership? So this was the threat, mass resignations. Look, I, I, I think that people need to fully understand what a Trump 2.0 administration would look like, because now he and the people around him know that they have to stack stack it with with loyalists would something like this happen the next time around we just don't know but also where's this dazzling detail where donahue basically just just calls him out and says you know what why don't you you know you know you're you're not qualified to do all of this what is what is this quote here why don't you go back and you know we'll wait for an oil spill for you to, <laughs> to, 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 to litigate or something like that but it's extraordinary i mean you know how how close this this came to happening. And I, you know. Yeah, can, can I just point, I want to encourage the audience. I want to encourage everyone, uh, no matter what your faith, uh, whether you worship, you know, Jesus or AR-15s or whatever it is, please get down on your knees and th- say a prayer of thanks that Donald Trump was stopped from doing this very simple thing by embarrassment. Because apparently what happened was that Donahue said, look, if you do this, if you appoint this guy, the leadership of the Justice Department is going to resign. That's going to look bad for you. And fortunately, the autocrat in the United States, Donald Trump, unlike, say, Vladimir Putin, cared enough about his ego and his how pe- what people thought about him that he thought that somehow this mass resignation was too much to bear because we were that close. It was the, all, all we needed was for Trump not to care, and he would have gone through with this. 
Yeah, let, let me just read you this one. I was I was looking for it while we were talking here. Um, you know, Donahue is telling Trump, look, don't do this. There's going to be the resignations. Also, this guy, Jeffrey Clark, has no qualification to be attorney general. He's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never been in front of a grand jury, much, much less a jury trial. And Clark objects. Well, I've done a lot of very complicated appeals in civil litigation, environmental litigation, things like that. Clark said, according to Donahue's deposition. That's right, Donna, who the city responded. You're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill? <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's my thought. Now, I urge people to listen to uh, our podcast tomorrow because I sit down with the Atlantic's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Jennifer Senior, who has written this profile of Steve Bannon, America's Rasputin. And Bannon is a smart guy, and he's very influential, but he's also a revolutionist. And I keep thinking of this scene with Steve Bannon in the office. So they're appealing to Trump's ego and his vanity. You know, this will make you look weak. A guy like Bannon will say, do you want to make a difference or you're not? This is your moment. You know, let's blow it up. We said we were going to burn it down and drain the swamp. This is the moment for you to do it. If there had been one other person in that room, I think the decision might might, we don't, we'll never know, but this is hypothetical, but, you know, might have been different. And the next time around when these decisions are made, it will be these fuck it all, blow it all up, burn it all down folks who are going to be there saying, you are the president, you can do anything you want, right? I mean, that's the real, real concern. Yeah. I mean, look, people, what you are watching in the January 6th hearings is game film. You are watching game film of Ooh, that's the, the the autocratic team running its plays and there's what seven of them charlie you know there's the sort of doj angle there's the pressuring mike pence angle there's the you know pressuring the states angle there's the alternate slates of electors and they ran these plays and they will run them again and they are now literally in the process it was as we were discussing in the primaries of putting in place the people who will run the plays more effectively you need to be studying the game film um, and and preparing yourself for the next round because it's not a game, right? It's the United States of America. That's pretty good. I like that game film thing. You should do something with that. You should like write it <laughs> or something, being a, being a writer and all of that stuff. Okay, so we, we've had this entire discussion without mentioning the name of the president of the United States, which I don't know, it seems just weird, but maybe it's where we're at right now. I mean, the stock market has been melting down. The Fed is about to jack up interest rates. Inflation is just, I mean, absolutely on fire. And that sort of behind the scenes whispering, gosh, we have to have a plan B for Biden breaks out into the open, that big story. I don't think you and I have talked since the New York Times reported about all the the uh, Democrats were saying uh, he's just too old. We can't. He needs to step aside. I don't know. Where do you come down? I mean, you've been critical of, of of Biden's age, but I get stuck on the question of Democrats need a plan B. They have no plan B. And I can't come up with a good plan B for them, which is an interesting moment for a political party. What do you think? I am with our friend JVL. I am a huge Mayor Pete fan. Uh, I don't know, though, how you put a white guy up as the nominee if who is not Joe Biden. If You left out uh, a word. Instead of, what, what, oh, the gay guy? Yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. I, 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 think, I think you have an internal problem first, which is you'd be bumping out Kamala Harris. You'd be bumping out a black woman to do that. And <sighs> that would be such a crisis among progressives um, that that would just not... But I mean, I, I'm actually a Kamala Harris fan. I like her. I like Mayor Pete Moore. 
but I don't, I don't really get why people don't like her so much, but it's, it's a problem. And Joe, I am the, I do believe Joe Biden's too old, but Charlie, the fundamental problem is we're asking the democratic party to be the same party. And the problem is the democratic party has beliefs. It has an identity. There's, it's at least half progressive. And so they have a bunch of policy ideas that they want to pursue, which don't always work out as with crime, as with inflation, as with the border or whatever. And so it's, it's a really tall order for us to get them to, to set aside the policy agenda and say, just be the party of sensible suburbanites. They had one job. You folks had just one job. Do not fuck it up so bad that Donald Trump comes back in. One job. So, he, he, yeah. yeah. All right. Can a, a little ray of hope, right? We've <laughs> talked. We, we, <laughs> oh, we definitely, can we save this for what? We're like 45 <laughs> minutes into the podcast. Okay. No. All right. My little ray of hope is yeah. San Francisco, right? <laughs> the same the same way, the same oh, way. The wow. Same... <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Bear, okay. Go with me on this. Okay, go with I am, me. I'm, with right. you. I'm with you. Yeah. The, the same way that that district in South Texas is like Hispanic. It's like the whole district is Hispanic practically. The whole voting population of San Francisco is democratic is progressive right it's like yeah. it's like what seven percent republican so the point is they voted out they recalled the crazy da chesa boudin and like it let's they decided democrats did that this went too far and they wanted sanity so there is still in the democratic party in one party you know enough of a enough of a population of voters to make sanity happen it it can happen it did happen how's that Okay, hold on a second. I gotta. I, I'm gonna take a phone call here. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, Amazon.com, please. Yes. Thank you. Um, uh, when can you get this shipment of a drum to uh, Mr. William Salatin? <laughs> a drum. Yeah. Okay. If you could deliver the drum. Yeah. No. Uh, could it be this week? Because next week I actually want to talk to him. You know whether, whether he understands what it means to be beaten like a drum. <laughs> <laughs> I said, sorry, sorry, I had to make that call. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I am struggling against the negativity here. It's just, um, you know, and, and I just, I, I, I feel there's a kind of a flailing around and this disconnect. So I live here in Wisconsin, as you know, as I, as I bring up on a regular basis and the political ads are just pounding uh, the airways and you know, they're not about January 6th, let me tell you. I mean, they're about three things. Uh, they are about inflation, crime, street crime, and the border. Just pounding, 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 pounding. And that's what's going to determine the outcome of the election. And then I turn on certain cable outlets, and you wouldn't know that those are major issues at all. And I just don't know whether or not this is going to click. Now, I, I did listen to uh, President Biden's speech to the AFL-CIO yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was it was a mixed bag, obviously, as all Biden speeches are a mixed bag. And there was a lot there. He was throwing up a lot against the wall. And I was thinking, like, that's a good point, but it's going to get lost and everything. There are themes that I think can be effective that they could use. The, the problem is, is that I, I think the speech sort of captured one of the problems of the Democratic Party is that because it's a coalition, you know this better than I do, because it's a coalition they have to appeal to all of these different constituencies at the same time. And so that's much harder for them to come up with a unified issue or to drill down on a specific point. You know what I'm saying? In other words, if, if you make just two points or three points and you pound them, pound them, pound them, you can really make headway. But because he's a Democrat, he has to make 
14 points because you got to check that box and that box and that box. And by the end of the speech, you go, okay, he made a good point back there, but I kind of forgot what it was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you totally. I mean, okay. Charlie, don't, don't you think that if you went to Donald Trump and said, all right, we're taking Biden out of the game, we're going to put you in the game, and your job is to go out and sell the presidential record of the last year and a half, don't you think he could do it? I mean, it, Trump did it when he was president. We only heard the good news. We only heard about the jobs that were created. We only heard about the growth. Biden has, you know, a similar record of jobs and growth. He he just he doesn't have what Trump has, which is the ability to market this one thing, to drive this message. And, you know, Trump had the advantage of not caring about anything else and not caring about any of the negative stuff. And Biden does. But I, I, I just don't see... I don't see Biden having the talent as uh, a campaigner oh, okay, to, well, to win okay. that. In his defense, Will, <laughs> I think one of the real problems of this White House, though, is that every once in a while he will show that he does get it and he has the right instincts. And then his own White House aides will walk it back. And we've seen that with Ukraine. We've seen it with another uh, number of other things. And I actually think that he gets how the middle class reacts to inflation. I mean, when I hear him say that, I said, I, okay, he actually talking about you know a $30 cost of something, what that means to a middle class person. I'm guessing he may be the only person in some circles who actually thinks about what $30 a month means to people. Okay, so I'm going to give him credit for all of that. But he's surrounded himself with, again, sort of the professional class who are like, well, if you don't say this, you know, the union head here is going to say this, and the teacher union wants to say this. And then, of course, the unions want more jobs, but we have to be concerned about the environmental lobby here. And, of course, we have to, you know, throw something out. And that's the part of the problem. So in many ways, I don't think that a lot of this is Biden's problem. It's like, and, I, and you read between the lines, and he's getting frustrated with this. He'll go out and he'll say something, and then you have the, the geeks back at the White House go, well, no, he didn't really mean that. You know what I mean? Okay, but you're, you're Charlie, you're letting Isn't Biden it? off the hook way too easy here. Like oh, I, Donald oh, Trump, Donald Trump would never put up with that. He would never like be, let people walk him back, right? If Biden had the vigor to get out there and drive it, he would drive it. And I look, I agree with you. Joe Biden does not have a thinking problem. Joe Biden does not have a lack of understanding of what Americans are going through. He is still middle-class Joe. He understands the mainstream on jobs, on the economy, on inflation, he on, on, on crime. He was out, you know, he's clearly out, he understands all of that. Joe Biden has a talking problem, not a thinking problem. And that is a huge problem because who else, you know, they're, they're like, what was it the that, uh, oh, it was about the protecting Supreme Court justices, you know, and Biden hadn't said something about it. And there, you know, the response from Chris Coons, the senator from Delaware, is like, oh, well, you know, the press secretary, the White House press secretary is talking about it. You need the president to be saying these things. The president has to drive these this message. And this president isn't doing it. And honestly, I think he can't do it. Why do you think he can't do it? I, I'm, I'm not trying to carry water from him. I just want to hear your point of view. I've heard him try and he doesn't have the the clarity, the focus, the vigor. He doesn't like, he's just not a strong enough speaker. But the thing is, I totally reject this right-wing view of Joe Biden, that Biden isn't running things, that he doesn't understand what's going right. on. Biden is extremely lucid. He doesn't have a problem understanding everything. He just can't 
talk and it's not a stutter thing. It's a, I honestly, he was better. I watched a video earlier this week of like Joe Biden from two years ago, even two years ago, he was better at driving a message. It, it, it's a fact that just with the age that he doesn't, everybody loses some of this. And unfortunately this guy is about 80 years, what is he, 78, 79? He's, he's just lost too much of that. Well, you use the word vigor a lot. So I think, you know, that's one of the questions. But, but to your main criticism where you said, I give him too much credit, you made a good point. Okay. Which is that I'm saying, let Joe Biden be Joe Biden, which is probably a, you know, talk about a high risk since I think he suffered from logorrhea for many years. Um, the old Joe Biden was kind of uh, long winded, you know, gaff, gaff prone. But your point is that Donald Trump would never put up with his staff cutting him off at the knees. Why is uh, Joe Biden putting up with that? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yep. And so then, and I'm not sure that's an age thing. At some point you walk back in the White House and say, you know, I, I am the president here and you just made me look bad. You just made me look weak. How does that happen? Yeah. I mean, yeah, really, I, I mean, that, that, that's not a speaking issue. That's not an age issue. That's what, I mean, here's a guy who's been around for a long time. He knows how to shut down somebody that makes him look bad. Right. Right. Charlie, does this go back to your point about the Democratic Party? I'm just thinking about what you said about the Democrats being a loose coalition of, you know, diverse mm -hmm. points of view. And Joe Biden, you know, a thing about Democrats that makes him better than Republicans, in my point of view, is not driven by sort of a cult, not driven by a single ideology, open to different points of view, open to different ideas and issues. And maybe Joe Biden is the classic Democrat, right? You know, I see your point of view. You know, I understand this concern. I said this thing about the border. I said this thing about crime. But yeah, you make a good point about, you know, police violence or whatever. And maybe he just doesn't have what Trump has, which makes, you know, this, I'm, I have this message and I'm going to drive it no matter what, which makes him simultaneously less electable, less likely to win an election and better as a president in some ways, because as we were just talking about, Trump was so driven by his idea that he wouldn't listen to the facts about literally who won the 2020 election. Anything else that we haven't touched on? Because we, I mean, we, we just, we just waded into this cloud of news. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the Fed, you know, and whether or not the Fed has control of inflation, whether or not there's anything the administration. See, I mean, this is part of the problem for Joe Biden right now, which is not a Joe Biden problem. It's the problem of reality, which is the president of the United States has very limited ability to change inflation, to do anything about inflation. So what you have to do is you have to look like you are, which means you throw things against the wall. You write letters to oil companies. You do a, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, but none, none of it actually makes it any difference, but it's, it's, it has to be frustrating is the, the one issue that you have to control, you are unable to control. It's hilarious to me because of the Republican lie about Democrats being socialists, right? Joe Biden's a socialist. They're going to run your life, right? If, if we actually had socialism, the government could, we, we have a problem with gas prices, right? Like we're going to issue a mandate. Now, socialist economics don't work. Don't get me wrong, but you'd have a lever you could pull. Joe Biden has no levers, right? As you're pointing out this letter that he wrote to the oil companies, that is the president of a capitalist country begging capitalists to change the way that what they're charging the refineries and, what, and the prices. And he, he can't make it happen because of capitalism. Well, you know, the funny thing about this is uh, I am old enough uh, to remember when Richard Nixon, a, a who was regarded as a conservative Republican at the time, actually imposed wage and price controls. Doesn't that seem like from a different, like, just era. I mean, it is a different century, quite literally. But there was a time when they and it didn't work. It was disastrous. It you know led to all kinds of stagflation and everything. But 
it, 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 it is interesting how, uh, you know, thinking in our, our political world has shifted since then, because the idea of imposing wage and price controls is, is not even on the horizon. I mean, is anybody even suggesting something like that? No, I, I don't. I don't not think, even Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah, I've, I've, I haven't heard anything from her on this. And, and uh, it's, you know, to be fair, Democrats just want to blame the companies, right? They, they want to, like, make sure they can find somebody. They, there's Putin. You know, it's his price hike or the oil companies are gouging you. But I mean, Biden does seem to have a point in this letter about the the, the price of oil relative to the price of gas and that the margins have gone up. And and uh, it's just that, yeah, he can't. He, this is a case where because of his office, he, he he can't make it happen. He doesn't have those powers. You know, and, and this is part of the problem is that the the numbers are just eye popping. I'm seeing now that, you know, wholesale inflation is now at 10.8 uh, percent in May. Wholesale prices rose. Look, I, I lived through the 70s when things were bad. Um, never anything like this. Producer price index rose 0.08% um, for the month, which would be a you know 10.8% annualized interest. The monthly gain was in line with estimates. The annual gain was uh, slightly off the record, 11.5% hit earlier this year. The data is significant in the prices at the wholesale level, feed through to consumer prices. Gag. So... Uh, all of this news seems like it's going to get worse. Anyone who, who thinks that, well, it's uh, it's only June and uh, plenty of time to turn around. I, I think we've kind of passed that turnaround point. So any president faced with, it, with this kind of headwinds would uh, would be in a lot of political trouble. Right. So the plane got is too high. Or whatever. The, the good news is this things will come down. And, but the problem is it's going to come down in the form of a crash, right? I mean, I, I don't know this for sure, but like when you overheat an economy, right, you need, you, you need to like cool it down. And the cool, if the cooling down is fast, that that's a, that's, that's a crash. People get laid off. Um, we're already, we've already seen, you know, dives in the market. So, you know, there things, nature will restore its balance, but it will hurt. It will hurt. And it looks like it's going to hurt right around the election. Well, and it's going to happen today. Federal Reserve expected to do something it has not done in 28 years. Uh, raise interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point. So we'll be able to talk about that later in the week. Will Salatan, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.